Good evening, church. So good to see everyone tonight. Uh, as Garth said, I know that uh, everybody had all kinds of things happen today, and you have all kinds of things going on in your life, so the fact that you would make time in the middle of your week to study scripture and to be with your church family means the absolute world to us. So thank you. We love you. Um, we're, we're wrapping up our series that we've been going through this quarter. Uh, next week, we will begin our summer series, so make sure that you make plans to be here on Wednesday nights during the summer because we're going to have some great guest speakers coming in every Wednesday night and bringing us an encouraging word. That's actually the, the theme of our summer series is an encouraging word. So these preachers have preached these lessons before, and we've encouraged them to bring them here and bring us an encouraging word. So we hope that you'll be back uh, next Wednesday night for that. Again, we're wrapping up this series that we've been going through uh, for the last three months or so, and if you haven't been with us, I would encourage you maybe to, to go back. Uh, all of these lessons are on our website, they're on our YouTube channel, and go back and, and consider these things. If this, if this series of lessons hasn't challenged you, um, I, I apologize. <laughs> it's, it's challenged me deeply. It's challenged me deeply. The goal here is not that we talk about them, those people, the world, the people out there. The goal here has been since the beginning that we talk about us, that we talk about our life, uh, that we talk about our sexuality, that we talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and acknowledging that we live in a world with competing ideas about sexuality. And the, the narrative that we find in Scripture about what it means to be human, what it means to, to engage in sex, what it means to be male or female, that our perspective on those things as Christians is unique in our world. And that's really not, nothing new. It was unique in the first century, and it, it, it remains unique today. And so understanding what that perspective is, what it, what it means to have a biblical or Christian view of sex and gender and the body and all of these things, but then also engaging with our community, with our world in the way that we should. But I want to go all the way back to the way we began this series of lessons and begin by talking about this idea of true love. The idea that our greatest need is to love and be loved. Isn't that true? Our greatest need, our greatest need. I believe that's a greater need than food, a greater need than clothing, a greater need than water, a greater need than shelter. You can have all of those things. You can have plenty of food to eat. You can have plenty of water to drink. You can have a house to live in. You can have clothes to wear. And if you don't have love and you don't have someone to love, you won't survive, not in a way that you remain who you want to be. You need to be loved and you need to love. And we all sort of intuitively know that, don't we? We all know that we need to love and we need to be loved, and so we're pursuing love. We're all pursuing love. You're pursuing love. Your neighbors are pursuing love. Your children are pursuing love. Your parents are pursuing love. Your, your brothers, your sisters, everyone you know is pursuing love. But here's, here's the, the, the other side of that coin. We have all tried to substitute true love, God's love, with lesser loves, and we are all suffering the consequences. This is the human condition. 
This is your condition. This is my condition. This is what we've done to ourselves. We've, we've known that we need to be loved and we need to love. And that ultimate, that true love that could fulfill us the way that it's supposed to and make us who we were designed to be is only exclusively the love of God. But we have all substituted that True love, God's love, being loved by God and loving God in return, we've substituted that with lesser loves, with other loves. And because we've done that, we've suffered the consequences of substituting true love. It's almost like, if you think about it as fuel for your car, it's like taking what is supposed to be the fuel for your car and substituting something that cannot fuel your car, you're going to suffer the consequences. You were designed to love God and be loved by God, but we have all substituted that true love with lesser loves. Love of fill in the blank, love of sports, love of nation, love of sex, love of money, love of power, love of popularity, love of fame, love of accolades, love of pats on the back, love of whatever. All of these other things, they might be good, they might be good, they might have their place, but they are lesser loves. And they cannot replace, they cannot serve as a permanent substitute for being loved by God and loving God in return. But we've all done it. We've all done it. You've done it. I've done it. Everybody you know has done it. We have all substituted true love, the love of God, with these lesser loves, and we are suffering the consequences. This is Romans 1. This is how we began this class, is by looking at Romans 1. I want to go through it just one more time tonight. Romans 1, starting in verse 21. For although they, talking about the entire Gentile world, that's all of us, the nations, the nations, all of these people in the world, they all... Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They didn't love him. They, we, we didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him or love him. We took the glory, not just, not just God's glory that belongs exclusively to him. I think Paul is talking also about the glory that he gave to us, the glory from God. Humanity was intended to be glorified, to, to reign with God, to reign with God over creation, but we took that glory from God and we exchanged it. We were supposed to be the image of God. We were supposed to be the image of God. You were supposed to be the image of God. But we exchanged that glory for images that resembled animals and people. We exchanged who we were supposed to be, what we were supposed to be, because we didn't love God as we were intended to love him. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts because they exchanged the truth about God, true love, the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's, that's, that's the human condition. That is what we have all done. We have 
worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. The created thing rather than the creator. Now, all of the created things, all of the creatures are good. Everything that God created, when he created it, he said it's good. It's good. It's good. All the things we talked about in this class have the potential to be good. Sex is good. Gender is good. All of these things are good. But what we did, what humanity did, what you did, what I did, was instead of looking through those things to God and seeing those good things and saying, wow, food is good. Thank you, God. Wow, this, this creation, this is good. Thank you, God. Wow, romance is good. Sex is good. Thank you, God. Instead of looking through those things to God, instead of those things pointing us to God, they became an end in and of themselves. We gave the glory that was supposed to be ours as God's image bearers. We gave that glory to the stuff and we exalted the stuff. We exalted the creation. We loved it. We honored it. We thanked it for existing rather than thanking the one who made it. And because we love that stuff, and we replaced, we substituted our love that was supposed to be directed towards God. We substituted that love, being loved by him and loving him in return. We substituted that with loving this other stuff and expecting the stuff to love us back. Love us back. Make our life worth living. Make us fulfilled. Fulfill us. Bless us. Take care of us. And God turned us over to those lusts. And said, okay, if you want to love and be loved by the creation rather than the creator, then knock yourself out and see how that works for you. And how does it work for us? It doesn't. It brings death. It's ultimately unfulfilling, isn't it? All of it, all of it, whatever it is, it's imperfect. It's an imperfect love. It's a lesser love. It is a lesser thing. For this reason, God gave them up we gave the glory that was supposed to be ours and the glory we were supposed to give to God. We gave that glory to the created things. And so God gave us up to dishonorable passions for their women. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Again, I don't think Paul is saying limiting this sexual behavior just to like what is happening in an idol's temple, but he's using this as an example of what all of humanity has done. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That's where he's going with all of this, isn't it? Romans 3. We've all sinned, both the Gentile and the Jew. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We've all exchanged the glory of God and given it to the creation. And we have received in ourselves the due penalty for our error. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is our condition. This is our condition. We're all, we're all struggling with this. We are, we're trying to wean ourselves off of these lesser loves. We're trying to get our lives where they don't revolve around these lesser loves. 
And we're trying to orient them around the love of God, being loved by him and loving him in return. At least that's what it's supposed to mean to be a Christian. To be a Christian is supposed to be that we are trying to get away from our idolatry. We're trying to put to death our idolatry. We could say things like this. We could replace these these ideas with all kinds of things in the blank. But since this is what we've been talking about, romantic love, or in Greek, eros, sexual love, this sort of sexual passion, is a lesser love. It's a lesser love. It's not the same love as the love of God, the, the way that God loves us and the way we love God. It's a lesser love. Oh, don't get me wrong. I've said since the beginning, Sex is good, eros is good, romantic love is good, but it is a lesser love. And when it's made an ultimate love, eros, which for the Greeks was a god, a false god, eros becomes a counterfeit god that enslaves and destroys. And all you have to do is look around. All you have to do is look around. I mean, grab any novel, watch any movie, listen to any anybody we have in our culture we have made eros we've made romantic love an ultimate love an ultimate love where you can't you can't really be real person you can't really be fully yourself you you can't really know yourself you you can't really be satisfied you can't really be fulfilled you can't really live unless you're in a romantic relationship with your soulmate and we've chased it, and we've chased it, and we've chased it, and we've chased it, and we've married, and it doesn't feel like a soulmate, and so we leave that spouse, and we go try to find another because we've made Eros our God. And when you make Eros your God, it will destroy you. It leads to death. That's what this class has been about, is that, yes, yes, if you, if you want to be married, if, if God leads you to and calls you to marriage, that's great. That can be a wonderful way to serve and glorify God. But eros, even with your spouse, cannot be an ultimate love. It cannot be an ultimate thing. It cannot be an end in itself. God has to be your ultimate. He has to be the one around which everything else revolves. Another idea that we've talked about a lot in this class, love of self is a lesser love. I think there's a place for loving yourself, right? Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself. There's an appropriate way to love yourself, to take care of yourself, to feed yourself, to make sure that you, you have the things that you need, to make sure that people aren't abusing you. Yes, there's a, an appropriate way to love yourself, but love of self is a lesser love. When it's made an ultimate love, Self becomes a counterfeit God that destroys and enslaves you. And again, just look around. We live in a culture. I'm not, again, I'm not saying them out there. I'm saying us in here. I'm saying this is in the water that we drink. This is in the food that we eat. This is everywhere around us. Saying, love yourself serve yourself, know yourself, be true to yourself, you do you. We, we, have, we have made self, so many of us have made self a God, an ultimate thing. And you are a horrible God. I hate to break it to you, but yourself is a horrible, horrible God. You will never please yourself. Never. I mean, maybe for a minute, 
but it won't last long. You've learned that, haven't you? God can be pleased with you. That's amazing, isn't it? The God, Yahweh can be pleased with you. He can look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You say, Father, I haven't been perfect. He says, I know, I know, I know it all, but I'm pleased with your faithfulness. But you, you will never ultimately say that to yourself, will you? You'll never be enough. You'll never do enough. You'll never know enough. You'll never have enough. You'll never be pretty enough. You'll never be strong enough. You'll never be smart enough. You'll never be whatever it is you're pursuing that you think, if I can just become my ultimate self, well, then I'll be satisfied and happy. It's a lie. It's a counterfeit God. A counterfeit God. And we have to resist these counterfeits. You say, yes, but, but shouldn't we love ourselves? Yes. And yes, you should love your spouse. But all of these things, even though they're good, they're not ultimate. God is the ultimate one. The only one who can fully satisfy us. The only one who can take the weight of our worship. You cannot take the weight of your worship. Your spouse cannot take the weight of your worship. This ideal person out there somewhere, your soulmate that you think someday you're going to find, even just the idea of your soulmate cannot take the weight of your worship. There is only one who can take the weight of your worship and who will not disappoint you and who will give you life forever. And he is the only true and living God. Love him. Orient your entire life around him. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And that's what the church should be. The church should be a home for recovering idolaters, right? That's what what we should all admit that we are. My name is Wes, and I am an idolater. I'm, I'm recovering, trying. I think I'm in recovery, and I'm trying to orient my life around God and his love for me and my love for him. But this is our struggle, This place, these people, the church needs to be a place of continually rediscovering the superiority of the love of God. That's why we sing. That's why we sing. So that we remind our hearts and our minds every time we come together, love for God is superior. Our love for God is bigger and better. Everything else pales in comparison. Everything else pales in comparison. Because when you're in the heat of the moment, whatever that moment is, whatever you're pursuing, whatever you're chasing, whatever you're loving, whatever you're worshiping, when you're in the heat of that moment, that thing, that pursuit, it feels like that is the most precious, most wonderful thing in the whole world. But when you're worshiping with your brothers and sisters in Christ, it's like, oh, I can, I can do without that, can't I? I don't, I don't have to have that. I thought I did. I thought I really needed that. I thought I needed to look at that. I thought I needed to touch that. I thought I needed to go there. I thought I needed to have that. I thought I needed to whatever. But when you're here, you're reminded of the superiority of the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that's why this can't just be a Sunday, Wednesday thing. This needs to be a constant thing for one another. 
And we need to recognize this about one another. We're all recovering idolaters. We're all in recovery. And we're all struggling with this. And everywhere we go, everywhere we go, every time we turn on the TV, every time we scroll social media, every time we see somebody jogging down the road, every time whatever, whatever, something is constantly yelling out, love me, pursue me, worship me. And all of your brothers and sisters are dealing with that constantly. And so we have to constantly be reminding each other about the superiority of the love of God. That's why, that's why I've just never been, just never really been satisfied with Christian relationships that are just about football and the weather. Just not. Because I'm sick. And I need people who will love me enough to help point me in the right direction. I need brothers and sisters who will point me towards the love of God. Because I can't just keep these surface level relationships. We need depth, don't we? To help us with our struggle with idolatry. Listen to what Paul says to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is telling them that for a couple of reasons. One, to remind them that they're forgiven, but two, to remind them that they have to be transformed. The church isn't just a place for forgiven people. The church is a place for the transformation of people. God wants you to actually be transformed. Perfect, that's not what I said. Transformed. Getting better. Improving we say all the time, oh, I struggle with this. I struggle with that. Sometimes that's a lie. It's a lie we tell ourselves. What we mean is I give in to this all the time. That's not the same as a struggle. Struggle means you're going to win sometimes. Not all the time. Sometimes it's going to whoop you. But, but a struggle means you're fighting. You're putting up a fight. You're putting up a struggle. You're saying I'm not that person anymore. I, I, Jesus is working on me. He's changing me. The Holy Spirit is transforming me. I'm becoming different. I've been washed. I've been sanctified. I've been justified. I'm putting on the new self. I'm putting off the old self. So the church has to be a place for forgiven people where everybody can experience this. Did you see the list? It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what your temptations are. It doesn't matter what your idolatry is. We're all recovering idolaters. Bring yourself to Jesus. He'll wash you. He'll cleanse you. He'll justify you. He'll set you right. All of us, all of us, nobody that could say, well, I'm just too, I've done too much, I've been too many places, I, I just couldn't, no, none of that, none of that. We don't, we don't go around parading what we've done and make long lists, you know, because we're not living, we don't want to live in that anymore, we want to live in this. But if you, if you need us to tell, us, tell you what we've done, you just come ask, we'll tell you, we'll tell you, because such were some of us, we're all recovering we're all struggling. We're all fighting this battle. And then he says this. He's kind of talking about the arguments that the Corinthian church is kind of using to say, 
eh, Paul, you're making a, too big a deal out of this sexual immorality thing. Like, it's not a big deal. I mean, we've always done this. This is just the way people are. This is just the way we live. And here's some of their arguments. They said, I have the right to do anything. That's kind of their, maybe what they're, they're saying, and Paul is quoting back to them. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. See, they got really caught up, apparently, on the idea that, well, I'm not under the law. Yes, but you don't want to be enslaved to sin anymore. This isn't beneficial. This isn't helping you. This isn't what it looks like to be living in Jesus. Then they would say things like this, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. No, he's talking about sexual immorality. And you can kind of see that argument, can't you? I mean, that's, that's what the body's for. It's for sex. My body wants sex, just like my body wants food. So when I'm hungry, I eat. When I want sex, I have sex. And, and so that's their argument. That's what the body's for. It's just for, it's just a, it's just a big, it's just a big machine. And it, it wants that, and so I just give it that. That's, that's the argument. But Paul argues back, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. That is what we've been saying since the beginning of this class, isn't it? That Christian sexuality, the Christian view of sexuality is not just about rules. It's not just about rules. It's about a unique view of what the body is, what the body is for, how it's defiled by sin, how it's redeemed by Jesus, how it's cleansed, how Jesus puts his Holy Spirit to dwell in our bodies to be a temple. This is what he goes on to say. God will, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. You see, the resurrection is why we don't engage in sexual immorality. Did you know that? The resurrection of Jesus and our coming resurrection is why Christians have to refrain from sexual immorality. Because these bodies aren't just a big hunk of meat. They're not just a machine. This is me. That is you. God loves your body. Your body is for the Lord and the Lord is for your body. And he will raise your body from the dead. You say, well, it's just going to turn to dust. He's going to raise it. He's going to transform it. He's not done with your body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sometimes we say things like, well, there's no difference between sins. There's, a, there's some truth to that. But Paul says there's a uniqueness to sexual sin. Because sexual sin is a sin against your own body. He doesn't necessarily say God feels differently about it. But he says, this is a sin against your own body that God sanctified. And that God put his spirit to dwell in. And when you sin sexually, you're sinning not just against God. Yes, you're doing that. But you're also sinning against your very own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
Again, again, I'm not talking about them, they, those people. I'm talking about these people. I'm talking about this person. I'm talking about us. And what God has done with and for your body. And this new narrative, this new story by which we get to live. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? It says, you are more valuable and precious than you can possibly imagine. And the glory that God wants to bestow on you, he wants to raise you from the dead and put you back in the glory that humanity had in the beginning. He wants you to have have that glory. He wants you to reign with him. He wants this body of yours to be raised up and transformed and for you to inherit the world to come. That's what God wants for you. Are you really going to throw it away for a five-minute experience or a year-long experience or a 10-year experience or a 30-year experience? Are you going to throw away forever your inheritance? Like Esau. You remember Esau? Esau was hungry, really wanted a bowl of stew, really wanted a bowl of stew. It's all that mattered to him right then. He loved the stew more than anything else in the world. And so he traded away his birthright. He traded away his inheritance for a bowl of stew. And we throw away our inheritance for a sexual experience. And it's not worth it. It's not worth it. But listen to the way Jesus treats people. I'm going to read to you from John chapter 8. If you have your Bible, feel free to look over there, but maybe you know this story. Early in the morning, Jesus came to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Right now, Jesus' people are being tested very similarly to how Jesus was being tested. People caught in sexual sins are being thrown in front of the church and were being baited and say, what do you say about this person? What do you say about that person? What do you say about this sin? What do you say about that? What do you say about this? What do you say about that? And people want to know, will you compromise the commandments of God or will you compromise compassion? And that's what they wanted to know about Jesus. Will you compromise the commandments of God or will you compromise compassion? Which one will you compromise? Because if you say, let's stone her, you're going to get in trouble with the Romans. But that's what the law says. And if you say, don't stone her, let her go free, then you're compromising on the commandments in favor of compassion, and then you'll be in trouble with the people. And Jesus didn't take the bait. And church, that's my encouragement to us. Don't take the bait. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. See, this is what Jesus always does, isn't it? He forces us to deal with our sin first. Deal with your sin first. Take the log out of your eye first. 
before you even talk to someone about the speck in their eye. There's a time for that, to talk to them about the speck in their eye. But you have to deal with your sin first. And these men had not dealt with their sin first. They were just there to accuse. They were just there to condemn. And they hadn't dealt with their sin. And Jesus said, if you're going to deal with her sin, let's deal with yours first. And that's what he does for us. He tells us, we've got to deal with yours first. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Have you noticed that's the first time in the story that anybody has talked to her? It talked about her. But to these scribes and Pharisees, she wasn't a woman. They didn't know her. They didn't love her. She was an issue. She was bait for a trap. She wasn't a person to be loved. But Jesus loves her. Jesus loves this woman caught in adultery more than you and I love our kids. I know it's hard to imagine. Jesus loves her more than we're really capable of loving because Jesus loves with a love that is purer than mine and purer than yours. And he loves her more than you could possibly imagine. And he spoke to her. And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you doesn't mean he approved of her adultery. Far from it. He knew that her adultery was destroying the community, was destroying marriages, it was destroying families, it was destroying her. He didn't approve of it, but nor was he going to destroy her or punish her. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And if Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world... Where do you and I where do you and I get the idea that we're supposed to condemn the world when Jesus didn't? And he says neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on sin no more. He came to forgive her and transform her. Jesus didn't compromise on compassion or on God's commandments. Do you see that? He didn't compromise on God's commandments, but nor did he compromise on compassion. He didn't take the bait, and neither should we. I know we're out of time, but let me, one last slide. In our cultural moment, here's what I think we ought to do. Five things. Number one, be filled with peace and joy, not fear and anger. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Peace and joy. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Everybody wants you to be angry and afraid. Don't take the bait. Don't give in to it. That is not the spirit of Christ. You don't have to live in fear and anger. I promise you that the world as it is now is not really any worse than it was in the first century in many ways, it's better. There are far more people following Jesus now than there were in the first century. Don't give in to the fear and anger. Number two, be uncompromising on both what we teach people and how we treat people. If you hold fast to the commandments, but you compromise on the compassion, you have compromised the faith. If you hold fast to compassion and you compromise on the commandments, you have compromised the faith. 
We cannot compromise either what we teach people or how we treat people. Number three, be committed to holding the church, not the world, to a Christian standard. Paul says, First Corinthians, God is going to judge the outsiders. We're not holding the world to the Christian standard, but we are holding the church to that Christian standard. Hold each other to that standard, not the world. Number four, be patient with those who are counting the cost of following Jesus. I could say that a million times over and not say it enough. Be patient with those who are counting the cost of following Jesus. Jesus never rushed people into discipleship. Jesus never rushed people into discipleship. He told people, you better count the cost. It's like building a tower. You better not start building before you know if you have enough money or going out to war. You better not go off to war unless you know if you have enough troops. You better be prepared to hate your mother, your father, your wife, your children, and even your own life if you're going to follow me. And if you're not ready to renounce all that you have, this is Luke chapter 14, by the way, if you're not ready to renounce all that you have, don't do it. Don't do it. We're asking people to adopt a very unique way of living life, of devoting their sexuality and their gender and their life and their body and everything they are and everything they have to someone they've never seen. That's a big deal. So don't be surprised if it takes a while to get on board with that idea. Don't rush them. Be patient with people. I said it before and I'll say it again. I would love it. I would love it if there were thousands of LGBTQ people that came here and said, I don't know that I'm on board yet, but I'm counting the cost. I hear what you're saying and I'm thinking about following Jesus and I would love for us to show people the patience and the kindness to say, we're going to walk with you as you decide whether or not this is the life for you. And then finally, number five, oops, sorry, number five, be willing to support and help other followers of Jesus bear their unique burdens. When people do decide to follow Jesus, they've got unique burdens to bear. Single people have unique burdens to bear. Married people have unique burdens to bear. Divorced people, porn addicts, LGBTQ plus people, Every person you meet that decides, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to give it all to Jesus. I'm going to follow him. It's going to be hard, and they can't do it by themselves. It's never intended for them to do it by themselves. They need you to walk alongside them. That's the only way this works, is for us to help and support one another. Because this life of obedience, this life of total surrender, it's hard. And we need each other. So in other words, in our cultural moment, we must be Faithful to the calling we've been called to. The same calling we've always had. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father God, lead us to people who need to be loved and help us to love them like Jesus. Help us to be uncompromising in what we teach people and how we treat people. Thank you, Father, for forgiving us for your mercy and your grace. May we show that mercy and grace to others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.